hearts of men. The shadow knows. <laughs> The shadow who aids the forces of law and order is in reality Lamont Cranston, wealthy young man about town who years ago, while in the Orient, learned the hypnotic power to cloud men's minds so that they cannot see him. Cranston's friend, Margo Lane, is the only person who knows to whom the voice of the invisible shadow belongs. traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. A few months ago now, I saw an advertisement for a comic book and the title of this comic book was The Twilight Zone, The Shadow. So what made this different from Twilight Zone books that had come out before was the shadow part of that title was actually referring to the 1930s pulp hero by that name. Now I'll be honest, I didn't really know anything about The Shadow beyond that 1994 movie starring Alec Baldwin. I knew that there was more stuff that had been released before, but I'd never really been party to it, so that's as far as my knowledge went. So I saw this, and I kind of thought to myself, well, you know, The Twilight Zone at its best, as many people have said, is ordinary people in extraordinary situations, so how does that apply to the Shadow, who is anything but ordinary? He in himself has his own powers, he has the ability to cloud men's minds. How's that gonna fit in with the Twilight Zone? I was afraid it might just be a bit of a gimmicky book, not really taking the subject matter that seriously. But there was only one way to find out, so I bought the first three issues. It's a four-issue miniseries, and the fourth issue is out on the 27th of July this year, 2016. So I read those first three issues, and to my surprise, relief and enjoyment, this wasn't just some gimmicky comic book that haphazardly threw the two properties together. It seemed to me that this was done by someone with a real understanding of the Twilight Zone. Now I can't speak for fans of the Shadow because, like I said, I'd never really been exposed to that world, but the Shadow elements were fun, pulpy, enjoyable, you know, everything that the title suggests it will be and the things that I knew about it. But the Twilight Zone elements were quite expertly fitted in to the narrative of this shadow story. So this hadn't just been thrown together. You know, like I said, this was done with someone uh, with real care, real attention to detail, and it seemed like a, a real appreciation of not only the shadow, but the Twilight Zone. So what's the story about? Well, I don't want to give away spoilers because at the end of the day, it's the Twilight Zone. But at its most basic, it's a story about the shadow who has a brush with the Twilight Zone. What I will say is this, it's a beautifully illustrated book, really vibrant artwork that really just pops out of the page. Beautiful layouts, really nicely done. But the man who managed to meld these two mythologies together in 
what I consider to be a very successful way was the writer David Avalone. What I think it's important to recognize here is, yes, okay, it's a comic book, and there have been Twilight Zone comic books before and Shadow comic books before, but to the best of my recollection, I don't think there's ever been a crossover where some established hero or character has had a brush with the Twilight Zone. Now I know that many TV shows have probably done parodies or tributes to the Twilight Zone, but I don't think anyone's really tackled it with any seriousness. Now it may seem strange to use the word seriousness for a comic book about the Twilight Zone and the Shadow, but I think that's the great strength of this project. You know, David Avalone has clearly taken both properties, understood them, understood how they worked, and melded them together. And he really has taken that seriously. He hasn't just done it haphazardly. He's taken the care and attention and done the research and really put them together to make it work. So I think that in itself is an achievement and he's really the first person to do it. So I really was delighted when David agreed to come onto the show and give us a bit of insight into how he made this most unusual project work. If you want to check out these issues, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to how you can order these issues. You can order them digitally from Comics Exology, and I'll put those links there. And you can also order them from Amazon, and you can get them on the Kindle, or you can go to your local comic book store and ask for them there. So I'll put those links in the show notes. But for now, let's have a listen to my interview with David Avalone. So David, we're here to talk about your comic miniseries that combines the the Twilight Zone and the Shadow. But before we do, as a way of introduction, could you tell us a bit about you and and your work? Well, uh, I've been an independent filmmaker for years and years and years. Uh, I've worked in pretty much every area of film, Uh, directed a couple of movies, written a couple, written some television shows. Produced, edited, I do a little acting, and about two years ago, a friend of mine named Allison Baker um, read an old script of mine that she really liked, and she thought that I could get work in comic books if I wanted it, and I mm-hmm. honestly had never thought about it, because, you know, it, from a standpoint of uh, anyone out there in the cold, it's like, well, how do I, that's just one more brick wall to break through but she had a lot of contacts and her husband had a lot of contacts and I went to a couple of conventions with them and they introduced me to people and they particularly introduced me to uh, the editor-in-chief over at Dynamite Comics uh, a gentleman mm. named Joseph Rybant and we got along very well and uh, he offered me a book uh, a year and a half ago called uh, Legendary Vampirella which was okay. a, a five-issue Vampirella steampunk science fiction adventure and I had a ball with it and uh, so he keeps throwing me a book every now and again and uh, the Twilight Zone one was the most recent one. So I mean I've read I've been looking up interviews and things with you online before I spoke Ah. to you and I, I know that you're a big Twilight Zone fan. Now everyone I speak to always has some early recollection that got them hooked into the Twilight Zone. Can you remember what yours is? I thought, you know, it's hard for me to remember what the first one is. I know that growing up in New Jersey in the 70s, I was born in 65, Twilight Zone episodes came on at 11 o'clock at night, mm-hmm. and I would stay up and watch them, and I, my parents would let me stay up and watch them. And uh, 
you know, it's hard to remember the first episode because just like Star Trek, man, I watched him every day. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> I, I don't remember what my first introduction was. It might have been, so I really think hard, it might have been The Invaders. Mm -hmm. um, and I think my in might even have been that I loved uh, the old 1950s sci-fi movie, uh. um, Spacing on Forbidden Planet. And because, uh, because Twilight Zone was shot on the MGM lot, they constantly reused uh, props and costumes from Forbidden Planet, and the Invaders uses the uh, spaceship. Mm -hmm. So I think I may have even like caught a glance of that flipping channels and gone, hey, what's this? And uh, was just instantly hooked. The strangeness of it and the cleverness of it, and uh, honestly, Serling himself as a character... I just found endlessly fascinating. I mean, my mine was kind of the same. I it was on on the BBC or one of the channels in the early hours of the morning, mm -hmm. and I used to stay up. and And I think when you're a kid and you're exposed to it, it, it kind of triggers something in your mind that okay, stories aren't just from A to B to C. Mm -hmm. They can do things a little differently. You know that that's what I kind of took from it. Well, and it felt like. I was a science fiction fan anyway, and uh, it was that same feeling you'd get reading short stories by Ray Bradbury or by Robert Block mm -hmm. or, you know, any of the greats. Um, you know, the guys that weren't, not so much Arthur C. Clarke, but, you know, the, the guys that weren't writing about technology but were using fantastic situations metaphorically. Um, because, you know, that's always, you know, every, every writer who writes science fiction always gets asked, you know, why that? And, you know, the, the short answer is always, you know, you can, you can make a movie about a guy wrestling with his demons, but in science, you know, in fa science fiction, fantasy, horror, you get to show actual demons and it's a more dramatic metaphorical mm -hmm. way of addressing what's really inside people. Now, I've got to admit, my knowledge of the shadow is limited to the, the movie um, from <laughs> 1994. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I started to look back at the shadow, and my God, I just didn't realize how much material oh. there is out there. Oh, yeah. It, it's insane, isn't it? I mean, have you always been into that stuff, too? Yeah, my, my dad uh, was born in 1924, and he grew up with the Pulp Heroes, so he introduced me to that stuff. We always had the... In the 70s, they re-released uh, Doc Savage and The Shadow and The Avenger and G8, all the classic pulp heroes in paperbacks mm -hmm. with really compelling, insane covers. And my dad had a lot of those and had some of the original magazines. And in fact, my father appears in the second issue of Twilight Zone, The Shadow, as a 13, 14-year-old boy in 1937, talking oh, to wow. the uh, radio actor playing The Shadow. Uh, I thought it was... And that was not a planned thing. I was just writing the issue. I was like, you know, Dad would have been wandering around the streets in New York City uh, in '37. So, uh, so yeah, I was familiar with that, and I'm well, very, very aware that this comic was going to be read by people who had no idea who the Shadow was. Mm. So I tried to feather in his art i found i tried to find reasons to tell the origin story over the course of the series uh right. so that you know jumping right in on page one of issue one uh, you know he's for people who don't know the shadow at all and don't realize how big an influence he is on pop culture you know it's it's batman with guns and a hat <laughs> you know <laughs> slightly less absurd costume and yeah. uh 
so, you know, I proceed from there with an action sequence, but then hopefully sort of let people know who he is. And, you know, the tricky thing is, unlike pretty much any other superhero type I can think of, uh, Walter Gibson, who created The Shadow, the whole idea was that The Shadow, your main character, was a mystery. It's sort of like if it wasn't revealed until issue 5000 of Batman that Batman's parents were killed when he was a kid. Mm. So the shadow, part of his appeal was maybe he was a Russian spy, maybe he was a soldier from World War One, maybe he was horribly disfigured and that's why he always wore disguises. And all of those things are floated at various times in the series. And it's only very, very deep that he tells you, no, really, he's Kent Allard. Really, he was a World War One flying ace. And, you know, well, since we implied the spy thing, sure, he was a spy, too. And, you know, he, he sort of retcons everything, every hint he's dropped into one slightly crazy uh, origin story. Yeah. And also, every writer, as they do over the years, has uh, has rewritten his origin story a little bit. Not because I'm some sort of purist. Uh, but simply because I find it the most appealing. I stuck with the one I remembered from Walter Gibson and sort of ignored what every comic book writer has retconned for the past you know, 30 or 40 years. You know, just a, a funny little sideline. Uh, when I knew I was going to speak to you, I thought that your surname just seems so familiar to me. And uh, I'm a huge Planet of the Apes fan. Ah. <laughs> and uh, there it was on my shelf, your dad's book. <laughs> and it was like... How cool. Yeah, he wrote, he wrote about, he was an insanely prolific fellow, and he wrote about 200 published novels. And uh, ironically, his Private Eye series um, about a character named Ed Noon did, I think, did better in the UK than anywhere else in the world. And it was in, because here in the States, it was in a bunch of different publishers, and only the first three or four were in hardcover. And... Uh, mm -hmm. In the UK, the entire Ed Noon series was in hardcover for the for the whole uh, for the whole period. So, you know, he definitely had a fan base over there. But yeah, the Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Uh, for those who don't know, my dad novelized the screenplay uh, for that. And depending on your age or generation, uh, men my age to a little bit younger to a little bit older all have that book. Uh, they have that book or they have the he wrote the first book in the Man from Uncle Tie-In series oh, wow. which was also big in the UK and actually got reprinted in the early 90s and I have no idea why I assume I leapt to the assumption that maybe the BBC was rerunning Man from Uncle episodes and it got popular again so I have no idea why they reprinted a 30 year old paperback in 1992 or 3 or whenever it was yeah, thank, you for, thank you for noticing that. Yeah, that's uh, he was obviously a big influence on me. Funny thing is, you know, not far along from that book, I also have a book of Twilight Zone stories <laughs> by Walter B. Gibson. So sure. it all seems to be that's right. I, you know, in my research for the show for this comic, I found out that Walter, the creator of The Shadow, had also written a Twilight Zone for Twilight Zone collections and things like that, which is kind of amazing. People, I mean, obviously we're speaking to a Twilight Zone audience and yeah. you, you just touched on it there that you, you wanted to make it accessible. But, I mean, going in, is there anything that people need to know about the Shadow uh, that you can tell them? Because uh, things like his secret identity isn't as straightforward oh, as a usual secret identity, is it? So not straightforward, and I did my best to make that. I mean, there are two distinct versions of the Shadow before... 
you know, the 1970s when they started doing comic books of him. And that is the magazine Shadow, who's really Kent Allard, who's really a World War One hero, who has uh, started a crusade on crime. Um, and he takes on a variety of guises. And one of them, just one of them, is this rich playboy named uh, Lamont Cranston. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lamont Cranston... The easiest thing in the world is, is is to just say he's Bruce Wayne. He's a you know millionaire playboy, but the big difference is he's not really Lamont Cranston. There is a real guy named Lamont Cranston, <laughs> and he literally pushes him around and treats him like a schmuck a little bit. And he, uh, you know, he'll basically say, "I need to infiltrate high society, Lamont. So you're going to Africa on safari for three months, and I'm going to borrow your tuxedo <laughs> and, <laughs> and and be you for for quite some time and date your girlfriend." Um, yeah. On the radio show, they went, wow, that's complicated, and boiled it down to, no, he's Lamont Cranston. <laughs> it's very... Nice, right. I went with the more complicated one. So in the first issue, he finds himself, the shadow finds himself inside the actual Lamont Cranston's body and kind of finds out that uh, he treats this dude poorly. <laughs> um, <laughs> he gets to see himself as this sort of frightening asshole that he is to the whole world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we suspect he knew that about himself, but it's it's a little humiliating to be in the shoes of the guy that's getting pushed around all the time. Um, yeah. But that's yeah. the complicated issue with the... Uh, I could have been way more complicated because he takes on a lot of different guises in the pulps, but I thought Lamont uh, is who people were familiar with. And Margot Lane, as an example, his girlfriend is also from the radio show. Mm-hmm. And the fans of the pulp magazines... Uh, kind of were up in arms when they added Margot to the pulp magazines after the radio show. But, um, you know, it's the 21st century, and I am an un- unapologetic feminist. And without Margot, the Shadows world is kind of brutally all male, and I, mm-hmm. I find that a little bit boring. And I thought she was sort of the perfect character foil for this series to be the one to tell the Shadow, hey, you're kind of a brutal merciless asshole and maybe maybe uh, you need to think about your approach a little bit is is this version of the shadow um that you're putting in the comic book are you aligning it with any of these anything in particular you know the the novels the radio play you know which which shadow is this it's about i'd say he's i don't want to take too much credit i'd say he's about 90 percent walter gibson's the shadow uh, and the extra 10% is my interpretation of that. Because I will honestly admit, any any modern writer who tells you who's writing The Shadow, I dare anyone to, to lie and say, oh, no, I've read all 600 Shadow novels. You know, <laughs> come on. <laughs> you know, let's be, you know, it's one thing to read all the James Bond novels. That's 14. You can race through those pretty good in a in a summer. Um, yeah, yeah. The Shadow, I've... I've, I feel like I've read the crucial ones. I've done as much research as I, I could outside of that. I've read up a lot on Walter Gibson's life. Um, but it's mostly, I would say, Walter's version. There's a, mm-hmm. another way in which I diverged a lot from current... Ver- There's sort of this, for want of a better word, orientalist trend in the later, in the more recent comic books, I should say, right. um, that the Shadow got his powers from Tibet... Uh, 
you know, with the Oriental mystics, and I'm using the old timey term advisedly because it's it's mm-hmm. kind of it's kind of a hack cliche to me of the white guy going into Tibet and getting magic powers from wise old shaman. And yeah, in yeah. the pulp magazines, he vanishes in Guatemala among the Zinca Indians, who are still so obscure that I I researched them for a month for three panels of the third issue of the comic book. <laughs> I didn't want to be wrong. I didn't want to be culturally insensitive. And man, it was hard to find anything in English about the Zincas. Their, their language is considered extinct as a people. There are maybe a couple of thousand of them left. And I found oh, wow. that just intrinsically more interesting than Tibet. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, to the best of my knowledge, there is no mystic tradition among the Zinka that allows you to become invisible and astral travel and read people's minds and hypnotize them. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I saw no reason to go back to the slightly more cliched uh, Tibetan mysticism. Uh, and I thought it'd be interesting and cool. And, you know, and instead of it being the wise old man on top of the mountain, I kind of liked that uh, in my version of it, the Indians laugh at him and tolerate him. <laughs> he's not their white savior they teach him a few tricks and he runs away um yeah. and comes back to the real world i thought that was a more interesting version of the character obviously we can't talk too much about detail sure. um because one it's it's the twilight zone we don't want to give any of right. the twists and turns away but you know i picked this up and i think the way you've integrated the twilight zone is so smart Thank- that you know, once I read it, I thought, you know, yes, that that's brilliant. You were given the job. You said yes. <laughs> How difficult was it to, to meld these two mythologies? Because you seem to have really struck a, a perfect chord with that. Well, thank you. I, I have to say it was extremely challenging. And I went through a couple of different variations. Because if you boil the shadow and the Twilight Zone down to their essence, the shadow is sort of the Twilight Zone in human form. In that... Mm-hmm. Ordinary people, be they criminals or the innocent or whatever, encounter this sort of supernatural experience. And, you know, for, for want of a better term, they're judged. Yeah. You know, they and they either meet the challenge, uh, like William Shatner deciding not to get stuck in a town forever because the fates are trying to tell him something, or uh, they fail the test and they mm-hmm. get stuck in limbo. Uh, trying to think of a good example of that, but, uh, you know, or they, you know, or like back there, which is the podcast of yours I was listening to the other day, you know, they, they, they learn an essential truth about how their mind works or how the universe works or something like that. And that's Mm -hmm. essentially the effect the shadow has on people, except he's a dude, (laughs) you know, he's a, a single human being walking around the world. And my first pitches were that the shadow was kind of a personification of the twilight zone and the word Mm. came back from cbs no 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 that is not what we want at all what we want is a twilight zone episode about the shadow where he goes into the twilight zone and encounters it and you know the and the and i even have a character say this i can't remember in what issue uh i think in the fourth issue when the shadow is wrapping things up he says you know it felt like something was trying to teach me a lesson and margo says to him who would dare you know who who would try to teach you anything you're you know you're the ultimate merciless know-it-all judge of everyone else Mm -hmm. dare anyone try to teach you a lesson 
I honestly think it, you know, it turned out in the best possible way because I like the shadow. I enjoy the stories, but the characters created in 1931 and me personally, David Avalone walking around the world. Do I believe in vigilantes? Do I think a private citizen has the right to go around with twin Colt 45, just shooting anybody that he personally judges as evil? No, I do not. (laughs) I think that's a, that's a pretty horrible thing. And so, uh, now the shadow gets a pass because unlike Batman, he can see into your heart and know know that you are evil, know that you are bad. Right. Um, but it still gave me a vessel to. I mean, it's sort of the the best case scenario for me in writing a shadow story is to deal with what is he, what makes him who he is. You know, a recurring thing in the comic book series is: Are you just? Are you fair? Is the shadow? You know, doesn't bloody justice and retribution isn't isn't it necessary that you be fair it's it's an extraordinary opportunity so that's that was the the beginning of that approach and um i can honestly say in again in the best possible way it's a little bit of a pretentious cliche writer thing to say but it got away from me a little bit in the sense that when I wrote the first scene in the first issue, I don't even think it occurred to me just how wrong, illegal, and psychotic the shadow behaves in those first mm. pages. Because, yeah, they're American Nazis. He breaks, if, for those who haven't read it, he breaks up an American Nazi meeting. Yeah, they're American Nazis, but they're not actually killing anybody. They're not actually engaged in any crime. And he blows up their radio transmitter and when they react by, you know, shooting at him, he shoots back and kills everyone in the room with a gun. <laughs> and that's kind of, now, you know, it's easy to say those people are Nazis, but they're also American citizens who have not actually committed a crime. <laughs> and uh, as I wrote the issues, it became clearer and clearer to me, okay, this is, you know, this is wrong. You can't just, just because someone's wearing the wrong color shirt um, which is what being a member of a psycho political party sometimes comes down to, uh, doesn't mean you know everything about them, doesn't mean you know what's in their heart. And so the fourth issue, which you haven't read yet, um, I go off in a pretty, uh, what I would call a very Rod Serling direction, and I say, well, let's look at, let's grab one of these American Nazis and find out what they think and why they think it and what can the shadow do about that you know uh because you can't shoot people into seeing the world in a different way and Mm -hmm. and again one of those funny things that comes up when you write and especially you know i had this series plotted out but i didn't have it meticulously plotted out the shadow has a chauffeur a driver an agent named mo shrivnitz and when it came to write time to write issue four i was like Man, I am so glad I have Jewish Mo Shrivnitz around for this con- <laughs> for this conversation with an American Nazi about what's wrong with his ideology. I would love to claim that I planned that from the beginning, but that Mo is in the first issue because he's a lovable character and because the shadow's in his car and he needs his driver. But by uh-huh. issue four, I was like, oh, I got a Jewish dude in the scene <laughs> with the American Nazi. That's incredibly valuable. So... There were the, those were really the steps. And the third, not to go on forever, but the third answer, how yeah. I paired and captured the Twilight Zone thing 
uh, before I wrote even my detailed outline, I reread Mark Zickrey's Twilight Zone Companion. Yeah. Just to read the plot and Rod's narration of every single Twilight Zone episode. I read the book cover to cover and went, okay, what are the tropes? What are the, what does he do all the time? What's in a lot of episodes? And a lot of episodes are about seeing the world through another pair of eyes. A lot of mm-hmm. episodes are about variations on time travel and parallel universes. There are a lot of, there are a handful of good episodes, um, like a world of his own about writers who can create the universe for real, um, mm-hmm. have control over that. And I thought, particularly since I'm dealing with a, a fictional character, a famous pop culture fictional character, that a great way to delve into what he's made of and what his origin is, is to take that meta step back. And so in the second issue, the main character is essentially Orson Welles, you know, the shadow forced to see yeah. himself as a ridiculous pop culture artifact on a radio mm-hmm. show. And then he inhabits the body of the writer trying to come up with that first issue of the Shadow Pulp magazine. So those were the, I let the, you know, the the short version of that is I read that book and I let the show teach me the language again. Well, that, that's it, because it, it seemed to me you, you were going with, because sometimes the Twilight Zone can be quite random. Mm-hmm. Other times, you know, I, I always say this on the podcast, I, I see it as a, um, and Rod Sailing as possibly a god or a guide mm-hmm. within this, this kind of thing that is the Twilight Zone, and it's slightly beyond what we can understand, so we don't always know its motives, mm-hmm. but often it's, it's in judgment of people. Uh, and that's is that right that that's kind of the, the version you were going with that twilight yeah. zone yeah that yeah. you know that at its best and at its worst honestly the twilight zone is people being taught a lesson through a uncanny experience mm-hmm. that changes their perspective on themselves and so what's the what's the uncanny experience that a guy as uncanny as the shadow can have? And yeah. and yeah, that what's the lesson that what lesson can you teach him? And I like I said, I think in any take any pop culture icon, take any character, that's a valuable question. Mm-hmm. What can you what can you teach Superman? What can you teach Spider Man? What can what is what is someone who has their shit together on such a giant cosmic level, what has he still got to learn about yeah. himself, about the way the world works? Or, you know, again, I not to overdo it with the shadow, I made it more what has he lost and need, what does he need to be reminded of? And yeah, it's tricky. You know, a lot of people ask me, you know, what what makes something the Twilight Zone? Why is this the Twilight Zone rather than just a weird story about the shadow and I just tried to use what I see as the for want of a better word the rules of those stories and they're pretty abstract rules before I even read the book I was kind of like well you know the twilight zone is usually ordinary people in extraordinary situations and the shadow is anything but ordinary how's this going to work but I, I think that's the great success of it you know like you'd say no matter who you are, you, you're still 
uh, make decisions in your life and do things and you know you can be open to the judgment of the twilight zone so right you might have opened the door here for for other things you know yeah well i mean we'll see if we'll see if anyone wants to continue with that kind of idea hmm. you know you could put any character really through those paces and you know the concrete thing that i tried to do because as a fan it's what i would want I mean, my, one, my favorite aspect of the show really is Serling and Serling's writing and his narration. Mm. And I really tried unapologetically to imitate that voice and that writing style and his the way he would have opened and closed these stories. And yeah. they were hard to write in some ways and easy to write in other ways because it's easy to get it's easy to go too far. I try yeah. to restrain myself from picture, if you will, or portrait, <laughs> you know, portrait of a man, Lamont, portrait of a man. You know, I didn't want to do those cliches. Yeah. But I wrote some pretty insane. I mean, I, you know, I, I wrote things in that were not in my what I would call my authorial voice, but were in, you know, there's I can't remember what issue it's in, but there's one where might be the opening of issue four where I use a breakfast metaphor. You know, the uncanny is his bread, the unusual is butter. You know, like I, I wouldn't write <laughs> that line in a million years, but it seems appropriate for that, you know, for that situation and for the for the tone of this. Because yeah. there are so few concrete things you can do to go, no, this is a Twilight Zone story. You know? mm -hmm. And one of those concrete things is the intrusion of a very specific narrator voice. And I feel like that's one of the things that all of the reboots of Twilight Zone get wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, for me personally as a fan is I don't want neutrality. Rod wasn't neutral. Rod had a point of view and a really, really idiosyncratic way of using language. And it wouldn't even have to be the same idiosyncratic view type of language. But he was a character. You yeah, know what I mean? Definitely. He had a sardonic, smart, but passionately moral voice. Mm -hmm. uh, and I feel like all the reboots that I've seen of it, at least the television show reboots, there was nothing special about the narration. There was nothing. It lacked the sort of brutal mid-century modern poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one of a for one of a name for that genre of Serling's voice, and I miss that terribly. So I tried to bring that. You're, you're kind of um, second guessing my questions here, <laughs> because no, that's okay. Because I always ask people, and I, I'm especially interested with you know people like you. You've been in the movie business, TV business for years now, so you're you're a creator. You've also now written a Twilight Zone comic, and I think we as fans are a bit more accepting of the Twilight Zone in things like comics, in things like books, because we don't miss Rod Sailing as much, yeah. you know? Yeah. We can fill we can fill that blank ourselves. Yeah. So as someone in the business and a writer of the Twilight Zone now, do you think we can ever do it? Do you think we can have that new TV series or movie incarnation and have it be successful without Rod Sailing? I think it would really require you know, I can't think of a person who could take over for Rod. That's the problem there's not when i think back on when i think of you know creators who are around today tv creators 
it's hard to think of someone who has that wide-ranging interest who is a compelling voice and a compelling performer you know what i mean like i don't know i can't think of someone offhand but i think it would need a it would need someone if you combined if you combined the talents of a smart funny on-screen presence with a great science fiction writer into one person and that's what's so unique about Serling you could do it but I really think you do need that I think you need the singular voice and you need the presence another way that all of these shows failed and I think this is even true of Star Trek and Star Trek spin-offs Twilight Zone and Star Trek were both written by the number one science fiction writers of the day mm -hmm. you know you got Jerome Bixby you got Robert Block you got Bradbury you got Harlan Ellison you know, they were culling from the absolute best, and then they have the greatest teleplay writer of the time yeah. putting it all under an umbrella. And man, Richard Matheson's don't come along every day. You know? <laughs> it's hard to, as, as great as Serling was, you know, the, a lot of the contribution, it's sort of like Gene Kuhn on Star Trek. Uh, Serling and Beaumont's contribution is so, uh, I should say, Matheson and, and Beaumont's contributions are so enormous. And the mm. way it all gels together. I really think you would need to find a showrunner slash personality who had that sort of sardonic yet highly moral view of the world. And I don't, I don't know someone who could do that. Um, mm. I think this being the 21st century, um, I don't think there's a reason to do it again until you find that person. And this being the 21st century, I think you should look beyond middle-aged white dudes uh, to fill that spot. I think it would be fantastic to have a showrunner of The Twilight Zone who was a woman mm -hmm. uh, and bring that perspective in. Because again, you know, you look back at The Twilight Zone episodes and this is uh, this is a a precept of the comic book series we're talking about we're all trapped in our perception and I think that a lot of what goes down as quote-unquote misogyny is literally it's just a lack of imagination mm -hmm. and any male writer will tell you that they have written a scene where mm, I don't know guys admitted to a hospital and the doctor walks in with a cop and because you're trapped in your own perceptions the doctor and the cop are two white dudes yeah. And it takes for many people, and in some cases myself included, an act of imagination to go, no, <laughs> they're two women, they're two Asian women, they're two, you know, like, they're, so all of this, a long-winded way uh, of saying that I think you could reboot the Twilight Zone, but you'd have to find that voice. And I think every re reboot they've done you know, they've assembled a nice writer's room. They've hired a talented actor with a nice voice to do the narration. But it misses that. I mean, it's funny. You say, is the Twilight Zone, you know, is the Twilight Zone God? There is a degree to which it's one man's universe mm. and one man's view of the universe. And even, you know, even though in the case of Star Trek, someone like Gene Roddenberry, you can overstate their importance considering how many great writers came up with those individual episodes. 
But they come in knowing the rules of this universe are this. Yeah. The rules of Star Trek are optimism and diversity and acceptance and peace over war, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, the sheer number of Star Trek episodes that ends with, you know what, we don't have to kill each other. Let's try to have a conversation among one another. If you go back and look at it, that's rarer now than it is in that original series, which is amazing. Uh, mm-hmm that most of the Star Trek movies end with, you know, blowing up the bad guy's spaceship. And that is yeah. not how we did things back in the day. And uh, I think the same thing is true of the Twilight Zone. You have a creator who has set up rules of how the universe works, and you get it, some very talented writers to, to populate that universe and to look at the world. And so the point is that if it was a woman showrunner, Maybe every other episode wouldn't be the midlife crisis of an ad man on a train. You know, mm-hmm. you'd just get a little, little more diversity. You know, I was thinking while we were talking, you know, how many of those episodes? You've got Anne Francis in the department store. You've got the hitchhiker. You've got uh, the old lady in the farmhouse. But there's less diversity in point of view then that I think you would have now. I guess the same question then for the shadow you know in this world of superhero movies is is he still relevant is it something that someone can bring and be popular they tried with that movie and it didn't really work you know the funny what, what thing, you think i don't know that? if you saw this in any of the other interviews with me i'm actually in that movie oh really yeah <laughs> i found out they were shooting it and i had i i was in between any number of jobs and i thought you know i'll sign up with an extra casting agency and then i never followed through I never signed up for any extra jobs. And they called me and said, this is central casting. I said, yeah, I'm not really. I changed my mind. I don't want to do it. And they said, well, well, we we need people who will fit size 36 and 38 tuxedos to be in the shadow. And I went, wait, wait, wait. You want me to wear a tuxedo and be in the shadow? I said, I'm going to be in the Cobalt Club. And they were like, it's freaky that you knew that it would be a scene in the Cobalt Club. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, well, of course. You know, if I'm in a tuxedo, I'll probably be in the Cobalt. Anyway, so I'm a bar. I'm a patron in the scene where he meets uh, Margot Lane. I'm actually standing right next to her when she walks in. Uh, oh, wow. It's my ridiculous... It's a terrible movie. <laughs> One of the reasons it's terrible, actually, is they tried to... They tried to incorporate elements that didn't work together from the radio show and from the pulp magazine, and they came up with something that was sort of neither fish nor fowl. And uh, hmm. long way around to answering your question, as always, for which I apologize, but the... It's a hard call. I think the shadow works best in the 1930s. I think mm. he... That doesn't mean you can't make stories about him now, obviously, but I think those stories work best set in the 1930s because in the modern era, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, pre, <laughs> it's a pre-Miranda world. It's a pre... I don't know, the men, you know, the, no, one, no one gets read their rights in the 1930s. And... Yeah. I, and it, he arises so much out of the sheer brutality of the gang wars of the late 20s and the early 30s and the feeling, which is common now in some places, that the police are hamstrung. But honestly, I don't think his brutality plays well in the modern age. You know, yes. I, I think you can place it in its time and place a lot of writers uh, recently have done shadow stories set in the 40s where he's fighting the rise of fascism, and I did that a little bit by starting off in 39. So I think you can still tell stories about him, but to unapologetically take him at face value, just like Tarzan. 
just like mm. any, you know, even in the 1960s or in the 1950s, James Bond in the novels is not an uncomplicated, you know, I think Fleming is aware he's writing about an alcoholic civil service, civil servant who kills people. And that's a questionable, you know, if, if Fleming wasn't aware that killing people was a kind of shitty way to express foreign policy, I don't think he would have Bond getting drunk all the time. Uh, nice. in order to do his job. And it's sort of the same thing. You know, it's Doc Savage, also from the 1930s. Doc Savage, when he captures a criminal, he takes them to upstate New York where he has a place he calls his crime college where he cuts their brains up and reprograms <laughs> them so they're not criminals anymore. In the oh, 1930s, wow. that seemed like a reasonable way to behave. <laughs> I'm using science to solve the problems of crime. <laughs> it's so fascist and insane <laughs> that yeah, yeah. you either have to pretend it didn't happen or you have to deal with it. So it's the same thing with the shadow. You have to, you know, in the in the 21st century, I don't know that I want the shadow emerging out of alleys in New York City and putting a whole lot of bullets in people because uh, mm. he's not he's not Spider-Man. He's not a, it, the minute you turn him into a guy who's tying people up and leaving them at police headquarters. He's not the chef. It's that's not who he is. That's, that's not how he behaved. Yeah. They did a great comic in the seventies. I can't, it might've been drawn by Kaluta. I can't remember who wrote it. There was a brief period where DC comics had the, the license for the shadow and they actually, yeah, yeah. they actually did an issue where the shadow meets Batman and Batman says that he was in a bank that was being held up when he was a little boy and the shadow crashed through the windows and killed everybody, you know, and <laughs> shot up the robbers. And, you know, he says, I always admired you, man, but the guns, I, you know, I, <laughs> I, I kind of can't get past the guns. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, long answer for, I, I think he works better in the atmosphere in the more brutal, pre-civil rights atmosphere in the 30s. <laughs> well, David, I'm out of questions. It's been a fascinating talking to you, but tell us about, you know, what's next for you? Where can people find you online? That kind uh, of thing. I can be found on Twitter at D Avalone. Um, I have a website, davidavalonefreelance.com, um, where I announce what I'm working on. Uh, Frankly, my editor-in-chief sent me a cryptic email a couple of weeks ago saying, I, I think I got something for you, but I can't tell you about it yet. So I don't know. Um, but I'm writing a uh, – I'm developing I, – I hate to be cagey about things, but you just you, – you, you hate to talk about projects and have them never come out. Um, yeah, of course. I'm, de I'm developing a TV series based on the life of a sort of – it's fictionalized autobiography – of the life of a sort of legendary comic book creator who I'm co-writing the series with. Uh, and we're trying mm -hmm. to get that off the ground and uh, some film work. I'm going to France in a couple of months to start work on a documentary about General Pershing, speaking of things from the early 20th century. Um, okay. But yeah, those are, those, those are the upcoming things. I have a bunch of Feelers out on new comic books, but nothing has landed just yet. Would uh, would you take the the regular Twilight Zone series if they offered it? Oh, I think so. I you know mm. I I um my you know my father 
his most famous quote is a writer should be able to write anything from a garden seed catalog to a holy bible and i think writing the twilight zone is an incredibly challenging thing uh i have nothing but admiration for the people who've done the regular twilight zone book i was very lucky to have the shadow to pun intended hang my hat on and Mm-hmm. give me another another in into the stories but yeah i would i would write that in a second i would love any opportunity go in a twilight zone time machine and find me age 12 watching twilight zone episodes at 11 o'clock on wpix new york and say someday mm-hmm. someone is going to pay you to write a twilight zone comic book i I easily would, well obviously I, I am in 2016 i am the happiest person who has ever lived if that's happening so, uh, so yeah, I would I would love an opportunity to play with the tropes again. I would love an opportunity to do Rod's voice again. Good. Well, let's hope so. Well, David, I uh, you know I really enjoyed the book, and getting your insights on it has has been absolutely fascinating. And you didn't take the long answers at all. You know that's what we're here for. And and I've loved speaking to you. Thanks for coming. Thank on. you, Tom. It was a great pleasure. So there we go. What a fascinating guy. You know, as you can see. Like I said earlier, this wasn't just some gimmicky project just throwing these two things together. He really took care to make sure it worked, and I think that really shows in the book. So, you know, it's a recommend from me, and if you do decide to give it a shot, uh, the first three issues are out now from Dynamite Comics, and the fourth issue is out on July 27th, 2016. So I want to thank David again for coming on the show. You know, I think he had great insight, some really great uh, stories to tell about how he came to this project. So it was a real pleasure speaking to him. And, you know, hopefully it's not his last brush with the Twilight Zone. So maybe we'll speak to him again in the future. Okay, that's enough from me. And I will speak to you next time.